0: and um i was i'd preach once a month so i was one of the uh there was only two elders at the time and a team of deacons but let me tell you i became one of the police the behavior modification police for 4 years of my life until i had an awakening it was it was quite bad actually um the 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 destruction that we brought to people and it was based on one thing i had a bad understanding of who god is taught to me by good men men whose hearts were really to do the right thing but they just they, they had not looked intently into scripture enough to to bring the reality and the substance of who Jesus is so we, how many of you know Jesus as the high priest not in the order of leviticus but in the order of melchizedek have any of you ever heard that before Jesus the son of god 100% god but Jesus also the last adam man, laying aside his divinity. Isn't that interesting that Jesus would lay aside his very nature of being God to take on the form of a man completely? That means that while for some mysterious reason, while he never ceased to be God, at some point he did cease to operate in that divinity completely and 100% man. Jesus, the first fruits. What does that mean to us? Jesus... The Lamb of God, we all know that story. It's taught as the number one theology and the number one doctrine in the church today. Jesus the Messiah, probably the most important and most vital teaching that we see the apostles teaching is Jesus the Messiah, not Jesus the Lamb. If you read through the scriptures, they 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 sought to prove that he was raised from the dead, not sought to prove that he had died. Many men had died. Paul goes on to write that. He says, I can go and take you to David's bone. Oh, Peter says it, sorry. I can take you and go show you David's bones in the tomb today. But Jesus, his bones aren't there because he raised back to life, making him the Messiah, the anointed king. That's a whole other story. That That is what activates us into kingdom life. See, we all want kingdom life, but none of us actually really know what it means because we don't know who Jesus is at the base of who he was. If we understand Jesus, we understand everything. So maybe in the future we can start to get some of that to you in a, in, a, in a way that we're all in agreement with it and really break down some of these theological and doctrinal discussions. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9, please. I just want to say, Ben, your message on two weeks ago on sin was incredible. I couldn't have said it better myself. Hebrews chapter 9. That was just a little introduction there. Let's read from verse 1. Now, I don't know what, what Bibles you have. I'll read from the ESV. Strangely enough, it is the, the ESV is the Reformed Bible. So it just goes to show you that my main, my main Bible of study is actually the ESV. But yet I stand strongly against some of the doctrines and theologies of, of Reformed people. How does that work? Because I think it's a great translation. But it has many errors, and we'll see some of them today. I'm not sure to point out the error of the ESV, but I want to take you more into the original language, and then we'll, ha- we'll get a greater understanding of what it is that the person who wrote Hebrews was saying. Some think it was Paul. There is no name to it, but based on the writing and based on the understanding of the Hebrew culture and the system of the Torah, they believe it's Paul because the writing is almost identical to how Paul wrote and they understand that Paul, being one of the most educated um, scholars of his day, he understood the, the, the Torah and the Tanaka better than anyone else, better, better than any of the New Testament writers. Okay? Now, even the first covenant, from verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand. And the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant that was covered on all sides with gold. And in which was a golden urn holding the manna. And it had Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of, of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, remember, this guy's writing to a Hebrew audience. He's writing to Jews. These are Israelites. He understands. They know the concept of the, tab- the earthly tabernacle under Moses. Firstly, I wanted to point out here um, that it's interesting that there is a pattern, a pattern that mimics the pattern of heaven. And it will do us justice to ourselves as the church If we understand the kingdom pattern, if we understand God's pattern for building local churches, for ministering, for how the gifts operate, how we communicate with one another, how we communicate with God, if we understand those patterns, we can build according to heaven's pattern. And therefore we maximize heaven's impact on earth. See, a lot of churches are just building whatever they want to build, just build according to the way it's always been done before. I've actually sat in meetings with church leaders where we've been discussing radical theological differences based on what we're seeing in the scriptures, and out of their mouths, these words have come. Come. But why change anything? We've always done it this way before. Friends, that is an absolute tragedy when anyone, let alone a leader of a church, says that. Because what they're saying is, we are not going to change. We are comfortable with the way we've done it, and it works. Well, mate, what worked before Jesus came didn't work after Jesus came. It wasn't working, hence Jesus did come. When Martin Luther began the Reformation... It wasn't working. And so there was a change. And that change brought about a reformation. But with that reformation came a lot of shaking and a lot of disagreements and a lot of discomfort. And in actual fact, with it came violence. But through the reformation, they settled into something else that, that now needs to be re-reformed. And it's going to come with discomfort. It's going to shake your theology. It's going to shake what you've always believed. And your answer cannot be this. Well, that's what I've always known. It's not good enough anymore. What you've always known, what I've always known is not sufficient. What the scriptures say, what Jesus himself models, that is the only way and it will do us well to search it out. If the word is living and active, my friends, it is constantly changing as you are living and active being are constantly changing. You do not look the same as you do when you were five days old. You look different now because you are growing. Because you are a living being. And if the Word, who is Jesus, by the way, is living and active, then He is constantly revealing more and more of His unending nature to us. When will we ever reach the climax of knowing who God is? For goodness sake, why can't we keep changing as we go from glory to glory? We say it all the time. We want to go from glory to glory. What is glory? It's not some substance. It's not gold dust. It's not a cloud that hovers over your meeting. It's not tingling up the back of your spine. What is glory? See, we want glory, but none of us actually really know what it is. It is the very essence of God himself. And so as you experience God, do you think you will ever experience his fullness? No. So you will continue to go into more. So there will always have to be change. So, where was I? It's chapter 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests would go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Now, what the writer is doing is he's actually, throughout Hebrews, is he's building up a case for Jesus being the Messiah. Jesus ending the first order, which is what they understood to be the only order, which was the order given to them under Moses, and he's, transition, he's transitioning them into a new order, which is the order of Jesus. These preparations, I'll read it again. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, which is one of cleansing. They had to cleanse, cleanse. But into the second, only the high priest would go, and he would go only once a year. And he wouldn't go without blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional, who's got the word sins after the unintentional? Unintentional sins of the people. Who's got Who's got sins? Who's using the the King James Version? What does yours say? Errors. Now, I'm just going to quickly click on this because I've got my concordance here right now. I just want to show you something that's very, very interesting. If you click on that word error, which the Strong's word is G51, it's agnomia. But we heard and we know that the word sin is hamartia. What gives the translator of this Bible the right to use the word sin when it's actually not the Hebrew or Greek word sin? So they are, they are conforming us to think about the Scripture in the way they want it to, meaning that you do unintentional sins. No, you don't. You do unintentional error. Your sin is very intentional. Guess what it is? Unbelief. And you need to be intentional about your unbelief. And by the way, in the Scriptures, the word unbelief and disobedience are the same word. So you are disobedient when you do not believe. Adam and Eve were first disobedient to God, but at the same time, they were not believing in the very fact that he had told them that they were like him in image and nature. And so in their unbelief of who they were and what God had said, they operated in the act of of disobedience. I don't need, I don't unintentionally disobey God. (laughs) I knowingly do it. So do you. I don't unintentionally disbelieve. I I, I chose, when I heard the gospel preached to me many, many times through my life, I chose knowingly and willingly to reject that message. There was nothing unintentional about it. But as a Christian, I do do unintentional errors. I do falter. Because I operate sometimes in the flesh and not in the spirit. Probably more so in the flesh than in the spirit. Sometimes I, do, I just do it as a as a natural reaction, and it's unintentional. I didn't preconceive the idea to do what I'm doing. I just reacted wrongly, and it was an error. So I just want to take the weight of the of the garbage that you you you, you sinned. You didn't. You agnomered. You see what's important when you actually have a Bible, I never read my Bible without my concordance. Never. And I use and I use three different translations when I read. And that's how I study the scriptures. I don't have to read through a whole book in one day. I need to read through the text so that I can engage with the nature of God. See, I don't read the scriptures so I can preach on Sunday. I don't read the scriptures so I do my Bible study. I read the scriptures because I need to engage and know my Father. And so I need to know him. And in order to know him, I need to learn about him. When I started dating Naomi, I, n- I needed to spend time with her. I needed to spend time talking to her. Why? Because I want to know what she likes, what she dislikes. What makes her excited, what doesn't. And it's the same thing with God. And the Holy Spirit who is in you will guide you through the text. Okay, so we look at this. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates... So we've gone through that whole thing. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section, the cleansing section, is still standing. Now listen to this. In brackets in the ESV it says, which is symbolic for the present age. Do you have that in your ESV Bibles? That is very, very erroneous translation of the text. Do you see what the writer of this text has done? is they have brought us and kept us in this present age. But in the beginning, we wrote that in these last days, which is a different age. Now, if you look at the original context of which this is written, translated directly from the original language, it says this, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet, ma- was not yet, you see, one is past tense, this was not yet made manifest, While the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present. What a gross misinterpretation of scripture. Much of Reformed theology keeps us in this age. And it does not give us access into that age. That age is for a future dispensation when Jesus returns. But friends, we have access into the present, into the future age to draw it into the present age because of Jesus walking on this earth, because of Jesus dying, because of Jesus being raised back to life and ascending to sit on the throne as the Messiah, anointed King. Why do you think the power, of the church sits powerless? Because we live fighting for this, this little battle in this present age, hoping for one day Jesus to return. Friends, Jesus has already put us into the future age. And we have experience of it. But we also have no experience of it at times. Because that age has not yet fully manifested here. But we can access it. Every time someone is set free from a demon, Every time someone is healed from a disease, sickness, med- whether it's mental, physical, whatever, every time someone gets born again into the kingdom, that is a manifestation of another age into this age. We need to read the text with the Holy Spirit and with eyes, friends. Let me tell you to scrutinize the interpretation of it. Is there anything wrong with scrutinizing the interpretation? of the Scripture in order to gain knowledge of the Word. See, we think the Bible is the Word. That's what you've been taught. I have here in my hands the Word of God. Well, what I have in my hands is an iPad, and in that iPad is this Bible translation, which is a translation of the Scripture or the Scriptures. But within those Scriptures is contained the Word of God, that is made manifest to you and me when the Holy Spirit enlightens it in our hearts. And if you read it with your mind, you will simply have an incredibly good history book. But if you read it with the Holy Spirit, you will have the Word of God made manifest to you, which then sets you free, which then transforms your life, which then brings wholeness and healing, which then brings revelation, which then manifests the kingdom in you, to you, and through you. So let's read it properly. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place was not yet opened, as long as the first section, the cleansing section, is still standing, which is symbolic for that present age, for that age then present, for that past age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, when was the time of Reformation? Jesus. That was there until the Reformation time. Jesus was the greatest Reformation, not Martin Luther. I hope you all know that. We may call that the Reformation, but it wasn't. Jesus was the ultimate Reformation. But when Christ appeared... I love that word, but, because the word, but negates, a, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a major transition word, if you understand the English language. Nothing was available to us, but, hang on, when I hear the word, but, I know something radical is gonna happen, right? But, when Christ appeared, that's why we have that word, you know, this, this age is falling apart, there's all these troubles, in this life you have many troubles, but, I've overcome the world. But, God. I love it. It diminishes what came before in order to bring forward what's about to come. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, here we go. And we know later on in in, um, Hebrews, we see that he came as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So it was not one that was in the order of of the Levitical priesthood. And And we see clearly from that where there's a change in priesthood, there is a change in regulations. So when he moves from being under the order, uh, under the Levitical priesthood, which every time a high priest was put into place with the Levitical priesthood, there was no need for a change in regulations. We understand that the regulations were set in place by God through Moses. But now there's a change in regulations because the high priest no longer comes from the lineage of the, Le- uh, of the Leviticus. He comes from the, sorry, of the, the Levites, sorry, not Leviticus, that's a book, from the Levites. He comes from the lineage of Melchizedek. I don't have time to go into Melchizedek now. Um, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things, I love that, that, that have come. Not that will come, that have come. Then through the greater and the more perfect tent or tabernacle, this is not one that's made with hands, so that it's not of this creation or not of this world. He entered... Once, once, for all. Into the holy places. I love the fact that it says into the holy places. See, on earth there was a holy place, but in heaven there's holy places. That just speaks to me of the multidimensional aspect of what the realm of God looks like. There's no longer one holy place that is only accessible by one man one time a year, and he has to go in with blood every year. This man, Jesus, enters into holy places. But not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Because remember, it could not purify the soul. It could only purify the flesh. Under the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats could only purify your flesh. And that for only a moment, because they had to keep offering more and more sacrifices time and time again. Every time, uh, there would be a time of the year or multiple times of the year where you as someone who was then a sinner who had the nature of sin as given to you by your forefather Adam would then have to go and all and have literally just the external flesh washed. And that flesh when sprinkled with blood would then be covered by the blood. Covered by the blood. Just your flesh would be covered. We cannot teach a gospel that says we are covered by the, you're a sinner covered by the blood. You're not a sinner covered by the blood. You're not covered by any blood. You are washed by the blood. That's a difference. One is covered, one is washed. What is washed? The nature of your sin is washed away. Go read Romans. Romans is one of the the most theological books on your nature of sin being taken out of you and a new nature being given to you. If you read that book and still come away thinking you're a sinner, you need to go and get born again. I'm telling you now, because you're not born again if you believe you're a sinner. Because then you don't you need, then you don't believe that you're a son, meaning you don't believe in the full gospel that's been preached to you. The actual fact, then you're operating, if you read that and you cannot draw the conclusion that you are no longer a sinner and you're now a son, then you are blatantly operating in disobedience to the word of God. I know that's strong, but you need to hear it that strong. Because it needs to actually shock you enough to go and read that book time and time again. I've read Romans, I don't even know how many times. I, I, it's one of the books that I always revert to. At least twice a year, I read through Romans, slowly. Slowly. Sometimes I read through it and then go back and read through it again. And now call that one, that's one reading for me. And I'll do that at least two to three times a year. That's me. That's Brad's little, Brad's little world. So how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Just give me a second here. I just want to say this to you because it just came to me. People say this to me. If I do not have the nature of sin, why am I tempted? Because surely temptation, because temptation comes. Who, who gets tempted? I, I, I do. I can probably raise both my hands and my feet. Yes, we do. Okay, so the rest of you that have raised your hands, none of you get tempted. Come and teach me. And lay your hands on me and help me. Who gets tempted? Thank you very much for being honest. Right. Look, if you can't be honest in church, where can you be honest? God sees you in your closet. (laughs) It's funny. You think you're hiding from God, but you don't. So, let me say this. The scripture says, Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Now, we read it like this. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. Friends, read the scriptures again through the original text, and look at what it's saying. It doesn't say that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. It said that he was tempted in every way, yet he did not have the nature of sin. It doesn't mean he never sinned. We know that Jesus never sinned. We know that Jesus never operated, not even for one second, in the flesh. But he was tempted as a man in every way that you and me are tempted, yet he himself did not have the nature of sin. Therefore, if you are in Christ, the nature of sin is taken out of you. Can you still be tempted? Yes, yet you do not have sin. Now, Jesus, operating by the Spirit, walked perfectly in the Spirit and did not give into the flesh. We don't do that. But we need to learn to do that. Because as according to Scripture, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So what do you need to learn to do? Walk in the Spirit. Do you think walking in the Spirit is laying hands on people and seeing them healed? Yes, that's part of it. We see that in Jesus. But but a big part of it is not walking in the flesh. Is not gratifying those desires. But let's deal with the acts of the flesh and the nature of sin as two separate items. The acts of the flesh you can still do as a born-again Christian. The nature of sin is taken out of you. And as I've said now, I'll say again... If you do still have a sin nature, you can get born again today. And that nature will be removed from you. Then it's a different battle you fight. And it's one of learning to walk out righteousness, not one of learning to battle against sin. The battle against sin was lost by you and me and all of our forefathers, but it was won by Jesus. So why do you fight it? What what battle are you fighting? One that you've always lost? Can't win, couldn't win, will not win. Come to Jesus, he will redeem, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first sin he 's cl- clarifying everything i 've just said for for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Do you under, everyone understands that, obviously. If a will has been made, that will does not stand and cannot be activated. The, the, when you have a will, you give it to a lawyer. When you, when, you, when you pass on, it's opened up by the lawyer. And only when you pass on, no one can open it, but he can. And whatever's in that will is then affected. Now, Jesus' will was this, that he will redeem all of mankind. So when he died, then they opened the will. Not here on earth, but in heaven. The funny thing is, is that Jesus, must, it must have been a, a massive party in heaven. Well, we know it was. But it would have been a good laugh because Jesus dies. His will is open. It says the redemption of all men. And then all of a sudden, baha, I'm still alive. And the enemy's like, oh, well, what can you do? The will's opened. It's put into effect. All of mankind's sin is paid for. And then Jesus suddenly comes back to life. And the enemy's going, what the hell just happened? <laughs> well, you finished, mate. That's what's happened. You've lost your power. You've lost your power to condemn human beings. You've lost your power to bring about a guilty conscience over anyone. And you've lost your power to rule and reign on this planet as long as born-again Christians walk like Jesus. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. which is a branch, and he sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. A martyr, sin. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves were purified with better, better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands. Sorry, not made, not, not into holy places made with hands. I'll read it again. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are only copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's a massive victory right there. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly. He's talking about Christ. If this is the case, if if your sin is not dealt with once for all, and once and for all, then Christ would have to suffer and be sacrificed time and time again. Now, later on, he actually addresses them for that. He addresses them by saying that if you continue in sin, after you have heard this message, after you have come to a knowledge of this message of truth, there is no sacrifice left for sin, but only an expectation of judgment. You have trampled the blood, trampled the blood of the covenant of grace under your feet. Now, we read that as you can lose your salvation. My friends, he's saying, if you hear the gospel, Jewish people now, remember, you're not Jews, but I'm talking to Jewish people, so put yourself in their position. If you, my Jewish brothers and sisters, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you reject that gospel, you continue in unbelief, in brackets, sin, There is no sacrifice left for you. Why? Because the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats is not doing it. So what other sacrifice is there? What you've done is you've actually trampled on the ground, not sprinkled on your body, the blood of the covenant that can save you. Do you understand that text now? For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool, hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book himself, da-da-da-da, we read that already. Okay? In the same way he sprinkled the blood, we read that already. Now, 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, I've read that already. Getting? Come on, Brad, get yourself together here. Ah uh, 26 thank you very much. Do uh, you know what I like? People are listening. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the at the end of the ages. Listen to that. He has appeared once and he's appeared for all at the end of the ages. To put away sin to put say that take that with me To put away my sin. I want you to say that. To put away my sin. Now it goes beyond that because he's going to put away sin. For who? All of mankind. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Friends, the power of Jesus is incredible. It leaves you, it it does not leave you with the nature, it does not cover you with his blood and leave you with the very nature that you could not deal with in the first place. That would not make sense and it would not be good news. And just as he is appointed, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sin of many will appear a second time. Listen to this. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I think that that's incredible. Jesus has already dealt with sin. How many of you have been taught that when he comes back, he's going to come back and he's going to deal with the sinner? He's not coming back to deal with sin. It says it right here in my Bible. Your Bible, my Bible, the original translation says exactly the same thing. When he comes a second time, it's not to deal with sin. Why? Because he already dealt with it. Where? In all of eternity. Why do we preach a gospel that brings about this fear of this unknown expectation? Well, I don't know. I'm a, you better sort yourself out. Because if he comes back and you're not ready, guess what you might hear? Get away from me, you evildoer. I do not know you. Well, I do know him. <laughs> I chose him because he chose me. And so when I get to him, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. In actual fact, I think it's going to be beyond that. I think he's going to go, come, my brother. We just move Friends, let me tell you something. When we understand Jesus, it will shift your reality. You will enter into realms of experiencing glory, which is His nature and His character and His very being in your life. That means you will experience supernatural peace through all circumstances. It means that you will experience the pleasures of God over your life. It means that we will experience the supernatural manifestation of that realm superimposing itself over this realm and it will manifest in many, many ways. Healings, deliverances are just two small ones. Freedom, freedom is a big one. I think that the biggest, the biggest area of issue when I first heard this message preached to me, which was, I can't even know, but it was after the first four years of my Christianity. I sat there, this was such a good message that I thought the man preaching it was lying to me. And so I went away angry. Angry at this man for preaching lies. His name was Rob Rufus. And he was, came to us in Dubai. And I remember going to my office at work and we, he came for a, um, a consecutive, he taught every night for a week. And I remember sitting there going, this guy's, this guy's gonna, cause I'm a, I'm reformed. I'm capital R reformed. This guy's gonna, people are gonna start sinning. This is gonna create problems. This is me in my office, gonna create problems. And I remember God challenging me and he said, Tonight when you go to that meeting, I want you to open the Bible and I want you to follow word for word what that man reads out of that scripture. Because I was at first sitting there listening, like most of us do. Listen, he reads the scriptures there, but I'm listening. But God challenged me to look at the text. When I looked at the text, I could not fault this man in what he was saying because he wasn't lying to me. He was reading word for word what I was seeing out of my own eyes. And I went, that. Okay, well, he's read it exactly what it is. Then he started throwing the Greek and the Hebrew out, and it started to transform things. Inside me, there was this rising up, this excitement that was rising up. But in my head, I was, going, I was going, this can't be true. This can't be true. And then I went the next day, and I opened up my concordance. Back in the day, I didn't have soft copy. It was a big, big book like this. I opened it up, and I started to go through all the words that I wrote down that he said they were. And I went and looked at them, and guess what happened? As I sought God out, God revealed himself to me. And from that moment onwards, let me tell you, the capital R just went flying off of my life. And this freedom came over me. Can I tell you what happened next? We began to preach this message, and we saw signs and wonders and miracles taking place every week, outside of church buildings, inside of church buildings, and wherever we traveled. In the workplaces, we had Muslims getting healed. On the streets... We were driving our vehicles, and we were getting overpowered by the presence of God to such a degree that we had to pull our vehicles off the road and sit there while our bodies were physically shaking under the power of God's presence. Everyone we laid hands on was getting healed. Signs and wonders were bursting out. Why? Because God was showing us like he had to show the Egyptians. You see, we all want signs and wonders. When signs and wonders come, it's for this purpose only, to change your mind. Because the Egyptians were living under slavery in bondage in their minds as to who God is. So God takes them out of Egypt and he takes them for 40 years, showing them signs and wonders in order to transform their minds towards knowing who he is as a God. Before they could enter into a land where they would co-labor with him. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what did I say? Oh, sorry. He took the Israelites out of Egypt. He did take the Egyptians out and then drowned them. <laughs> but but the Israelites, he took them through. Sorry for the recording. So so they all saw signs and wonders. But the, the, the transition period in the desert was, was there to transform their minds back to God, to know that this is who God is. And then when they stepped into the promised land, guess what happened? The signs and the wonders that they knew in the desert dried up. Why? Because now they became co-laborers with God. So when we were in Dubai, we were seeing these signs and wonders happening because God was going, this is the message, this is the message, this is who I am. Every time we preached it, He came. And then it slowly sort of weaned off, and what happened is we started to become ministers. God stopped ministering to us, and we started ministering alongside God. Now we are co-laboring as sons and no longer having our minds renewed as servants and slaves and orphans. Amen? Let's pray. Father, if I can pray anything, if you want to just you respond however you feel, hand on heart, head, actually we probably need to put our hands on our heads because that's the area of, of disconnect right there. So Father, we lay our hands on our heads and we ask you to take away the fleshly mind and the way we see things from what we've always known. We ask you to transform and renew our minds to fit in with where our hearts have been ringing. I know that some people today, maybe when I've been preaching, because if it's truth inside you, your heart begins to leap. There's an excitement in your belly. You start to get, I don't know, I get, even preaching and I get butterflies in my belly and it becomes exciting and you feel like you can do this. Like there's there's an empowerment for you to live in accordance to God's ways. There's an empowerment for you to live free of the things that have kept you in bondage. It doesn't leave you going, oh my gosh, I have failed but and I don't know what to do and you feel bad about yourself. You go, oh my gosh, I've actually missed the mark over there and and but I feel that I can be empowered to, to live in accordance to God's ways free of that thing. That's because you've been hearing with your heart. Father, where people have been listening with their minds and they've been challenged, I pray that you would remove the barrier of what we've always known, what our denominations have taught us What our eyes have read through just the surface reading of scripture, and that you would begin to allow the heart, or heart, to take over. It's not hot in you, or I'm hot, but your heart. Let us hear with our heart, our heart, Lord. Let it overrule our mind, and may your spirit reveal to us the truth that sets us free. Lord, in this church, Will you begin a reformation so that we would enter into greater measures of walking with you? And so experience your dignity, your glory, the very nature of who you are. I pray, Father, that as we preach from week to week, as we spend time in small groups around dinner tables, coffees, but as we rub shoulders with each other, that we would somehow get to know Jesus and his nature and character more that our theology is shaped by him and who he is as the perfect representative of you. And let that then translate through us modeling that out ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.